following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Eminent theologians, Bart Tillich and Brenner, one day met the Lord Jesus, and the Lord asked these famed intellectual theologians, who do men say that I am? And they replied, well, some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Some say you're the Christ, the Son of God. And then the Lord looked at these famed liberal theologians and said, but who do you say that I am? And these intellectuals chorus back their learned answers, Thou art the ground of being. Thou art the leap of faith into the impenetrable unknown. Thou art the existential, unfazable, unverbalized, unpropositional confrontation of the infinite, inherent, subjective experience. After which the Lord Jesus looked at them all and said, Say what? <laughs> Understand this morning I want to ask you a similar question. Who do you say God is? When somebody asks you, Who's God? How do you answer them? What do you say he is like when we watch your life? What are your actions and your attitudes and your speech? What do they indicate about your theology? A.W. Tozer says, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. I would agree with that. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. One of the most important pursuits of every single Christian in this room is to grow to know God. Remember the passion and the heart of Moses who said in Exodus 33, Now therefore I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may, what? Know you. Like Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, I count all things to be lost and the surpassing value of knowing Jesus my Lord. You and I are to grow in our passion and our hungry, hunger to know God. Just like those men, to pursue intimate friendship and relational closeness. We can go through the motions as Christians. We can say we know God, but not walk with Him. We can be believers and yet grow distant from Him. And so today is a challenge for us to grow more intimate with our Savior. Sadly, there are things that work against our growing intimate with Him. Some because of bad teaching have an errant view of God. Some because of Hollywood have a weird view of God. Remember that movie Raiders of the Lost Ark? Remember that? You know, God's really happy if you leave Him alone in His box, but if you open the lid to His box, He'll melt your face off. There you go. Others, because of weak teaching, have a low view of God. I've discovered that there are actually believers, because of difficult hardships that they've experienced in their lives, sometimes in the church, they've developed a, a distorted view of God. Uh, they see Him as uncaring or cruel or even indifferent, and they're just, I'm just never going to trust Him. I'm never going to get involved. I'm, never, I'm just going to remain distant. Well, the half-brother of our Lord, James, writes to people who are just like that. They've been through some rough stuff. And he wants to minister to them and say, let's correct your view of God. 
Let's do that. So open your Bibles, if you're not there already, to James chapter 1 and follow along in your outline, whether paper or electronic, because these folks have been persecuted by their own family. They've been kicked off their land, they've been kicked out of their country, some of them, they've lost their homes, their livelihood, and they've been taken advantage by the greedy rich, and they're now impoverished. They're beginning to think that God was not only causing their trials, but that God was also tempting them to sin. They were thinking that their God was a little bit harsh and a little bit cruel, a little bit unfair. So starting at verse 13 of chapter 1 that we started at last week, James reminds us uh, that uh, you cannot blame God for your temptations to sin. God isn't tempting you, but your very nature, who you are, is at fault. The problem isn't the tempter without, it is the traitor within. The problem is with you. So last week we studied 13 through 15. Take a look at it, if you would, in your Bibles or in your outline. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by who? God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. James made it clear in verse 13 Number one, don't blame God for your own sin. Don't blame God for your own sin. Number two, verses 14 and 15, accept responsibility for your own sin. And to convince you that the temptation to sin is your fault and not God's, in verses 13 through 15, James describes the nature of evil, the nature of man and woman, and the nature of lust. Now, some of you might be bold enough to say, Chris, can you tell me what's really wrong with us? Okay, what's wrong with us, Chris? Well, God answers that question through the prophet Jeremiah when he says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus said in Matthew 15, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man or the woman. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, fornications, thefts, fault witnesses, and slanders. In spite of the truth, if you are here today and you are genuinely saved, even though you have been gloriously saved, two, that you actually are partaker of the divine nature in 2 Peter 1, three, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you nevertheless retain an enemy within you. It's in the form of sinful longings, sinful passions, and lusts, strong emotional desires. Theologians call this, you might want to write it down, the sin residuum. It's remaining sin. That's how they define it. Yes, that old man, that old nature, that old man within you is now dead. It's dead. He no longer controls you. If you are in Christ, Paul declares, Romans 6, 6 makes it very clear knowing this, that our old self was what? Crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we are no longer, say it with me, slaves to sin. You're no longer a slave to sin. In your life, Christian, it was never, ever the old man versus the new man. That's a false theology. Sadly, though, the memory of sin, the inclination of sin, the desires for sinful pleasures still remain. Sin residuum. Still, sin still taunts us. 
sin still stinks within us. Can I hear an amen to that? It is. It's kind of like clean Swiss cheese. That's what you are. You've been washed fully, but you have all these crevices, these inclinations in you that sin loves to camp out in. Sin loves to collect. Now, I want to explore this a moment. How bad really are you, believer? And that includes me as well. Well, let me give you kind of a list. James taught us last week that even things in our lives that are good and honorable can be lusted after for sinful reasons, even good things. Food and sleep are wonderful and necessary gifts from God. How many of you here, come on, love food? Can I see your hands? Look at that. Wow, how many of you love sleep? Yeah, yeah. How many don't like sleep? Okay, never mind. Whatever. You know, but when you covet food and you covet sleep in an extreme way, it becomes gluttony and it becomes sloth, right? It turns sinful. Sexual intimacy is an amazing gift that God has given to a husband and a wife for a mutual physical pleasure and the reproduction of the race, etc. But it was designed with no exception exclusively for marriage. No exception. God's Word condemns few sins more seriously and severely than sexual intimacy outside of marriage. Added to the perversion of God's good gifts, from our own strong desires, from our own pride, we can disobey God with sins of commission. Do you understand commissions? It's disobeying what God has commanded. And then sins of omission, which is not obeying those areas that God has commanded, which is much more prevalent in this room, much more prevalent. Though many believers don't lie or cheat or steal the sins of commission, many Christians don't disciple, they don't serve, they don't give sacrificially, they don't love, they don't build up others as they're commanded to the sins of omission. Add to that difficulty is our ability to sin even as we seek to live for Christ. Think about it. Some take the road of religious legalists who in their zeal try to righteously live in a way that pleases God, but they often slip into self-righteousness, do they not? They condemn others while they hide their own sins. Others take the road of the libertarian who abuses grace to such a degree that we have this very prevalent today. They get drunk or they actually blatantly swear, use horrific language, and they think, well, it's all under grace. Add to that all those sinful compromises, uh, the battle of sinful bents, Abraham's deception bent, David's lustful bent, and Peter's foot-shaped mouth bent. All of that. Each genuine believer here right now, sitting right next to you, has a sinful weakness, a sinful bent that they will struggle with the rest of their lives. One of the keys to parenting is to help your children understand their bents and understand how to live above them. To live not being sunk by them, but to help them with them. What makes it so nauseating is each of us are unique in our bents. One person's passion becomes another person's repulsion. I mean, those of you who are fishermen, you know that certain kind of bait is needed for certain kind of fish, right? In the same way, it is with our allurement to sin. There's certain sins that appeal to us and certain sins that do not. And even as born-again believers, we've got a lot of sinful inclinations and sinful desires and the memory of our fallen flesh that clings to our soul like Velcro does to a sweater. Have you noticed that? Like honey does to a toast. 
sometimes I feel like a big sticky mess. Anybody with me on that? So with all that, all that geared against us, all that kind of weighing upon us as sinners, surely it must be God's fault for our temptation, right? And the answer is, James says, no, Christian, if you believe that, you've got a wrong view of God. In contrast to verses 13 through 15, which describe the nature of evil and man and lust, James now highlights the nature of God, verse 17, and the nature of regeneration or salvation in verse 18 of James chapter 1. James makes it clear you've got a warped view of God if you think the Lord is tempting you. If you think the Lord can't be trusted, and by the way, there are too many Christians who cannot and will not trust God. And if you think he can't be trusted, you've got a warped view. Understand, James is going to say, God is not the one who entices you to evil. God is not. That, that's your problem. And no, God is the unchanging giver of all good things, for verse 17. And God is the one who transforms those he saves so we can live above this sinful temptation to some degree in verse 18. That's why, number three in your outline, that was all introduction, be confident in God's character and God's conversion. Be confident in God's character. Listen, you want to battle sin, you've got to be confident in God's character and in your conversion. James says to the oppressed readers, correct your view of God, my family. Verse 16, take a look at it, and for all the way through verse 18. Do not be, what? Deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth uh, by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. God does not tempt you to evil, verses 13 through 15. No, in spite of your sinfulness, in spite of your sin residuum, in spite of your temptations, God only gives good gifts, verse 17. And it's so giving, he's so gracious to us that he actually transformed us in salvation, verse 18. And he gives us three reasons in these three verses to actually trust him. To trust him in the midst of trials, in the midst of temptations. Verses 16, 17, and 18. First in your outline, God made you beloved. God made you beloved. Now he says, verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Don't be deceived. About what? Well, verse 15, let's go back again. James just instructed us on the nature of lust. Look what verse 15 says. Don't be deceived about this. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to what? Sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. In verse 15, he described lust as a mother. He uses that terminology, bearing a child. Sin is the child, and its ultimate destiny is death. The Lord's very clear through James here that sin in your life is not a one-time act. It doesn't just happen, but the result of a process that we saw last week, it starts with desires, number one, and then it moves to deception of the mind, and then number three, it moves to then disobedience of the will. So let's look at these one more time. Number one, desire. Let's get this right. Don't be deceived about this. Desire. Sin begins primarily as a feeling. Write that down. Sin begins primarily as a feeling, a longing for something. The emotion is often subconscious, and the feeling develops from somewhere deep inside of us, expressing a want to acquire, to achieve, to possess something. 
Now, what ignites it? Well, the, the fuse can be lit by any number of things. Come on, you've done it. You're walking by the mall, and you see something in the window, right? And all of a sudden, you have this strong desire for that item. Anybody with me on this? Come on, would you admit it, please? It sparks within you. You're just saying, where did that come from? Why do I want that thingamajig? You don't even like it, but you want it somehow. Now, you're seeing a hot car on the road, and it may ignite a, a want for a new make, a new model, a Tesla, finally a Tesla, a BMW Z4, the Shark. Have you seen that car? Man, nice. Or you catch a glimpse of a cute person, and there's the light, the desire for a relationship or something even worse, sexual intimacy, etc., Lust to sin begins when something or someone grabs our attention and draws out a strong desire. That's where it starts. Secondly, in your outline, the deception. This connects to the mind. Uh, more than emotions, when we think about the desired object, we start thinking about it, and then we basically, our mind begins to rationalize and justify somehow getting it. It's kind of the fish begins to start looking at the, the worm, and it kind of negates the hook. We're, we're like, yeah, yeah, I kind of need that. I want that. And so they begin to minimize the danger. They begin to want it. They begin to justify their effort and their desire to have it. And it's at that point, James says, lust has conceived. And number three in your outline, disobedience. So that stage involves our will to justify the sin in your mind, to make plans to fulfill the emotional desire, then your will makes a conscious decision to pursue that lust so that you can be satisfied. And since the will is involved, interesting enough, since the will is tied into this, the step is where the most guilt lies. In other words, when you begin to think about it and you begin to act upon it, that's where you become those who sin. What has been desired is rationalized, is then pursued as a matter of choice, and that's when we sin. If we allow the process to continue, the will will act in disobedience to God's law, and then we will violate God's character. By the way, you want to understand what sin is, it's very simple. It's disobedience to God's law, it is a violation of God's character. That's sin. We miss the mark. So now it goes without saying that earlier in the process, the earlier that in this three-step process that you begin to deal with it, there's a much greater opportunity for you to overcome the sin. Are you tracking with me? The earlier in the process, when you begin to resist, the greater likelihood you'll avoid the sin. Conversely, the longer you delay resisting, the more likely sin will occur. And since none of us are successful in resisting every temptation by immediately rejecting a wrong desire, we need to understand Ways for stopping the choice to sin at every stage, all right? So at every level, you need to figure out, what am I going to do? Well, obviously, you can avoid many temptations simply by avoiding places and situations where you already know they're most likely to occur, right? Please be common sense Christians. When the Bible tells you to flee, you know what that means? Are you ready? Run in terror. It means get, get away, it means get out of there. Don't be around that. So we need to be people who understand that in certain aspects of our lives, we need to avoid situations. Can you hear me? Hey, if you're a student, hear me. You need to avoid situations. Uh, you know, not read certain books. Don't go to certain movies. 
Don't watch certain TV programs. Uh, Don't search the web if that's a problem. Don't explore on your phone. Listen to immoral music. Don't click on Instagram. Don't dive into Facebook. Don't associate with compromising friends or go to certain places where you know that your emotions will be aroused by any sort of enticement to sin. Don't go where you will sin. Does that sound really obvious to you? This is why the New Testament says flee. Get away. You, that's right. You have to make choices. You've got to make hard decisions. You've got to choose intense accountability. You've got to determine, are you ready, to dam up the source of sinful rivers in your life. You've got to dam them up. Those sinful rivers in your life so enticement won't happen. You often need to stop the sinful enticement at the source. You've got to stop pouring enticement fuel on the fire of your soul. You've got to avoid it. Just like the drunkard does not go in the bar, just like the caffeine addict cannot go into the coffee shop, you should not go to places or hang out with people where you're prone to sin. Don't pour gasoline on the temptation fire. It's that simple. Instead, make certain you expose yourself to those events that fuel your emotions in godly ways. You choose to go where places where you know you're not going to be tempted. You hang out with godly, fun friends. You're faithful in ministry. You're busying yourself and studying the Word and Bible studies. You're doing kind deeds. You're serving others. You're listening to Christian music. You're reading biblical books and biographies. You're being selective on what movies and television you watch. You're getting accountable over your computer and your phone. You've got to be in guard with your mind. Train your mind to keep watch over your emotional desires. Instead of rationalizing temptations, Prepare in advance to oppose them. Do you think that Joseph was ready when Potiphar's wife made a grab? Do you think he was ready? Right? He was ready. He ran. He knew exactly what he needed to do, and you need to do that. You know, Jesus, when he was tempted, he quoted Scripture. He said, it is written. Whatever your sin battles or your bent is, if you don't know the specific verses that address those specific issues of your sinful bents, then you are in a knife fight without a knife. Let me say it again. If you don't know the verses that address your sinful bents, you're in a knife fight and you have no knife. The Word of God is your sword. It's your sword. It's how you do weapons. Listen, Christian, you may be called a Christian, but I'm going to tell you quite plainly right now, you are a fool. If you know what your sinful bent is and you don't know the passages that address that, you are a fool because you are not prepared to do any battle at all. The Word of God is your weapon, it's your sword. Listen, what spoke the universe into existence? The Word of God. It is powerful, and it will help you to resist temptation. The Bible is how you win the war against temptation of sin. And and because so much of the battle of temptation depends on your mind, train your mind, Philippians 4.8, we looked at it several times last week, to dwell on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right. To dwell on those things. Work at thinking correctly. Tell yourself when you go down that road and you're thinking something improper, say it out loud. Be just like me, all right? Say, no! People are walking along the street and Chris is walking along and all of a sudden, no! And they're going, what's his problem? He's talking to himself again. No, there's a battle going on and I don't want to think it. And so I say no, and I start thinking about the things I should be thinking about. Does that make sense? you got to go to war. Jesus said, love the Lord with all your mind. 
all your mind, then make certain your thinking is saturated with Scripture, not sin, saturated and filled with principle, not pollution, soaked with doctrine, not dirt. John MacArthur writes, when the cycle of temptation is complete, verse 15 says, sin is accomplished and it brings forth death. He writes, the child conceived by lust is born a murderer, a killer. To use another figure, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Sin, sin brings forth physical death, separating the spirit from the body. Spiritual death, separating the soul from, the, uh, from God. Eternal death, both body and soul from God forever, end quote. Because you have been saved by faith in Christ, a Christian is rescued from spiritual and eternal death. But if you continue in defiant sin, you may pay the penalty of physical death. Some of the Corinthians died from partaking communion while they were in disunity. And John teaches us as Christians in 1 John, there is a sin that leads to death. So these sobering truths plead with you from James in verse 16. What's he saying? Verse 16, that was all setting us up. Do not be what? Deceived. Don't be deceived about this. You got to go to town on this. You got to go after this. You got to war against it. My beloved brethren, deceive there is the process of erring. It's this going astray. Christians are not to make the mistake of blaming God for their sin rather than themselves. Stop blaming people. Stop blaming circumstances. Stop blaming Satan. And especially stop blaming God for your temptations, for your failures, for your sins. Take the full blame yourself where it belongs. It's you and it's me. Realize your fallenness your lusts, your weaknesses, your rationalizations, and your sins are within and must be dealt with within, mainly with your mind. And this is why James says, do not be deceived in your mind. That's what he's talking about. Do not be deceived in your mind, my beloved brethren. Now, don't miss what he also says in that verse. I just read over it because it is often overlooked. You can trust the Lord, put your confidence in because you are loved. Hey, you're in this battle. And all of us sometimes feel like failures. Can I hear an amen to that? We fall short. And he says, yeah, but don't be deceived about this. But remember, you're my beloved brethren. You're loved by God, and I made you family. You say, well, he's talking to James here. This is James saying that. Yeah, but it's God. It's Christ who has made you beloved, and he has also made you family. Has he not? You're his. You belong to him. So it's, it's not merely beloved by James, beloved by God. He loves you. You can trust him. He made you family. You can be confident in his character. Well, take it a step further. Number two in your outline, God is unchangingly giving only good gifts. Unchangingly only giving good gifts. Every good thing, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, from whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God is not responsible for your temptations because... His own nature is incompatible with the nature of lust, the nature of sin, even the nature of man. God is wholly righteous. He's wholly perfect. He is blameless, impeccable. He cannot sin, meaning that he can have no part of sin in any way, in any degree. No part. What comes from God is not sin, but verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift. The flawless, holy goodness of God results in his giving only what reflects his perfect holiness and his sinless character. Look at, look at that really clear, clearly. It's every good thing given and every perfect gift. 
He uses two different Greek words there, giving and gift, emphasizing the act of giving and what he gives. So in the very act of giving, it's perfect, and in what he gives, it's perfect. In the very process, your God is a giving God. He's a giving God. What he gives and how he gives is perfect for you and always beneficial to you, and it could be basically someone who is absolutely counted upon. You can never, ever, and never need to doubt it. Negatively, he's saying, look, that from your temptation to your choice of sin, God has absolutely no responsibility. But positively, he's saying, God is completely responsible for every good thing, every perfect gift that exists. All of them have come down from heaven to you. Now, in a rich, fat, materialistic culture, we forget to give thanks We forget how rich we really are. We forget how much we have. You have food. You have clothing. You have housing. You are wealthy. And then he's lavished us with all so much more. Have you really counted your blessings because they came from your heavenly father? I wore my wedding ring today. I write all the time. On the inside is James 1.17. After 40 years, it's a little faded. But it's still there because she is the perfect gift. The perfect gift. My kids are the perfect gift. My grandkids are the perfect gift. This church, the perfect gift. You, the perfect gift to one another. The things that you have, perfect gift. God has lavished us over and over and over with perfect gifts. And we need to remember what he's done for us, even in the midst of our battles. James calls God the father of lights. This was a Jewish title for God, uh, referring to God as creator, as the great giver of light, he, uh, in the form of the sun and the moon and the stars. And then he says, even though God created those lights, he's not like them. He created those lights, the sun, the moon, and the stars, but he's not like them in the fact that he is unchangeable, where these things change. Now, there's a lot of change with the planets and the sun and the moon and the stars, right? There's the length of day. There's the apparent variation of the course of the sun. There's the phases of the waxing and waning moon. There's the locations in the sky of the stars and the planets. They're always changing, right? Right? And James says, though God created those lights, he's not like them. Your God will never change. Your God is awesome and that even though he's created those incredible sources of light that can vary, God's character, God's power, God's wisdom, God's love has no variation no shifting shadow. You can depend on him. You can rely upon him. His grace is sufficient. He is unchanging. He is dependable. In fact, in 1 John 1, 5, it says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, no sin at all. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, forever. The celestial bodies change all the time. They vary in intensity every hour. Your God is changeless so much so that Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. We change. We alter. The, the universe, creation change. God does not change. James is telling you, you can trust his character. He's giving. He's changeless. He's trust. You don't have to earn your salvation. You don't have to earn his grace. He's changing. He's giving. And by stating this, he's really asking a powerful question. What he's saying in the context here, when you as God's children are so abundantly showered with your heavenly Father and all that he can bestow, why should anything evil have the slightest attraction to us when he lavishes us? 
How could you even stoop, he says to these readers, so low as to blame God for your temptation? That's what he's assuming here because God is so unchangingly giving of good gifts. One of our problems, if you want to make some adjustments in your sin battles, is to start giving thanks more often. To start giving thanks more often. To start rehearsing all the things you have. Some of you ought to look in your closet and go, wow, look at all the clothes I have. Have you thanked him for that? That provision? We are lavished. We're spoiled. And thirdly, God chose to transform you in salvation. This is like the capper of the argument. Okay? Look at, I've never caught this before in James. Listen, I'm convinced that if Martin Luther had seen verse 18, he would not have called James the strawy epistle. Because he missed it. Somehow he missed it. Because look at verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Now, you could trust God because he saved you. He made you new. He transformed you. Listen, the Lord is not the source of evil. He's the source of eternal life. He's not the source of sin. He's the source of salvation. Salvation. Verse 18, James again proves God is not at all responsible for your temptation because he's given you a new life and that new life can rise above temptation. That's the point. This born-again life is godly, holy, and Christ-like. Christianity is the life of God and the soul of man. And, and the new birth is a person who is recreated into a believer, given a totally new nature, which wants no part of anything evil. In contrast to the nature of evil and the nature of lust and the nature of man of verses 13 to 15, he now says the opposite, the nature of regeneration, verse 18. Listen, get this down. Our own lust is what birthed death. Our own lust is what birthed death. The gift of God births life. In exact opposite. Look at verse 18. What prompts God to save us? Well, if you or I this sinful, which means there's none righteous, no, not one. Men love darkness rather than light, and their deeds were evil. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. If you were that sinful, then who can save us? Verse 18, take a look at it. In the exercise of what? His, oh, say it like you mean it. In the exercise of what? His will. His will. James emphasizes that regeneration is not your decision, but a specific act of God's will. God alone has the power to accomplish this salvation. This is why the phrase, it is in the exercise of his will, that phrase is at the very beginning of the Greek sentence, giving it an emphatic or emphasized nature. What he's saying is, it is God his sovereign will that is the source of new life. No baby ever has been born into this world by its own will. Correct? The baby did not choose to be born. Uh, its conception, its gestation, and its birth are completely out of its control. The child is merely a passive recipient to the decisions made by parents and God himself. In the same way, no person wills a new spiritual nature within themselves. Jeremiah says it really plainly in, in chapter 13, verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? Then you also can do good and who are accustomed to do evil. Then you also can do good who are accustomed to do evil. You can't do it. 
You don't have the ability to change your nature. Repeatedly, the Bible affirms you can't change who you are internally. You can't stop sinning on your own. You can't save yourself. God must appoint you. God must elect you. God must choose to save you and open your heart first. Say, Chris, where do you get this from? The Bible. Acts 13, 48. Listen to this. As many as have been appointed to eternal life, chosen, called, appointed to eternal life, what happened then? They believed. Acts 16, 14. And the Lord opened Lydia's heart, opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. God had to open her heart. God had to save you by the exercise of his will. God determined to save you. Listen, you're battling with temptation. You're struggling with it. Listen, God saved you in spite of that. He saved you. Listen, you're in your battle. You're getting discouraged. He saved you. He called you. He called you beloved. He made you his own. He he gave you all these lavish gifts, and he's called you to himself. All right? What does God do in saving us? Verse 18, next phrase. Look, he brought us forth. Circle that phrase. He brought us forth. Brought forth is from the same verb, gives birth, in verse 15. So basically, God is causing us to be born again. We give birth to sin. God gives birth to salvation. God regenerates his chosen children. God gave you birth to a whole new spiritual life. Regeneration is the miracle of God in which he gives new life implanted into a sinner. And then the governing disposition of their soul then is desiring to do what's right, desiring to please God. It's a new birth, being born again, just like Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. He told Paul that he was the one who was going to make us alive. You were dead, and Paul says God made you alive. The new birth is unseen by any human eye. When salvation occurs, you may look the same on the outside, but you're not the same. You're not. Uh, But it is able to be experienced by any human heart in this room that turns to God through faith in Christ. That's the tension of Scripture. You're called to turn to faith in Christ. You're called to repent of your sin, and yet God is the one who pulls it off. And this new birth is always evidenced by new living, new lifestyle, new direction. What accomplishes the saving? Look at verse 18, the third phrase there, by the word of truth. The word of truth is the gospel. It's what saturates your New Testament. It is the message of God's truth. The word of truth is literally by the truth's word, meaning the word of God, the scripture. Believers are born again, regenerated by the power of God's word. The power of God's word. The Bible is powerful. Are you getting that today? It's powerful. It can help you overcome temptation, but it's also the very tool that God used to cause you who were dead to make you alive. He says, so faith comes from hearing, Romans 10, 17, and hearing by the word of Christ. Regeneration sovereignly given. It's the word of God is implanted into your heart, allowing the sinner to express faith in Christ and repentance from sin. When God awakens your heart, then people openly admit that they're sinful to the core, that Christ is God, that who was their substitute, dying on the cross for the punishment of their sins, rising from the dead, and now he is able to cover them with his righteousness in order for them to stand in God's presence, and their sin will then be punished on Christ. Why does God save? He says his purpose, verse 18, that we would be, the last phrase of verse 18, take a look at it, that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. First fruits is an Old Testament expression referring to 
the first and best harvest. Listen, you're a, an Israeli farmer and your crops are coming in. You take the very best and the first of that harvest and you offer that to God. You offer that to God in hopes of that something else is coming. The greater harvest is coming. And it's a way of saying, I trust you that you're going to cause the rest of the harvest to come in, that I'm going to give this to you. Well, he's saying that you now, his readers, James, are the first fruits. You're the indication that this world's going to be redone. I mean, come on, Sally was remade. Chris was remade. People who have been born again are different. They're unique, and they're evidence that something greater is coming to this planet. You're the first fruits, that there's going to be a kingdom that's going to be perfect, that we're going to live in a perfect environment, that because you have been redone, this creation can be redone. You're the first fruits. There's going to be heaven on earth in the eternal state. You're the first fruits. And that's what James is saying. He's saying, look, you've got a lot to hope in. You've got eternity. Listen, I know you're battling with sin. I know you're battling with trials. That's what he's been telling him. But look what God has given you, how he's lavished you with these things. And beyond that, even in your worst situation, with your worst kind of trial, he saved you. He caused you to be born again. He did it. He didn't have to. He lavished you with his grace, caused you to call to himself, and you're now the evidence that new things are coming on this planet, that you have an eternal perspective. Are you getting what James is talking about? This is great stuff, people. I mean, this is exciting. This is amazing what he's saying. How could God be the one who tempts you? I mean, in light of what he's talking about here, that you're now reborn, you're the special property of God, you're the first fruits, you sweetly belong to Christ alone, you're evidence that God is, is all his coming promises are going to happen, you're that evidence. How could God be the source of sin? The answer is never. Don't blame him. His character is is the never-changing giver of all good gifts, verse 17, and he is the initiator and the provider of life-transforming salvation. He's the one who rescued you from this, this sin. So verse 18 says, and verse 17 says, no way can you blame God. No way. So are you confident in God's character? Are you remembering the good gifts that come with no shifting shadow, that God never changes, that he keeps his word? You can trust in His grace. You can trust in His promises. Are you trusting in the fact that He saved you, that He initiated that salvation, that you were a defiant sinner shaking your fist at heaven and He said, I don't care. I'm going to love you anyway. I'm going to cause you to be born again. I'm going to give you the faith to believe. I'm going to give you the repentance to turn. And I'm going to give you a new life now, a new life forever. And you're going to be the evidence on this planet that great things are going to happen on planet Earth. Can you be confident in God's character? Amen? Amen. So... Take this home, if you would. Letter A, thank God daily for your salvation and additional blessings. Thank Him all the time for your salvation and additional blessings. How can you, who have been given so much, complain or want more? Now, I know in our culture we seem to be losing more and more and more, but those weren't promises of God. He's already lavished us with so many things. Understand, things do change, it's okay, but even as our culture continues its rapid decline and races toward Armageddon, we are still a blessed people. Would you agree with that? Our material wealth of homes, cars, clothes, food, discretionary money, come on, how many of you this week, I won't make you raise your hand, had a coffee and you spent like five, six bucks on it? <laughs> you know what I mean? 
We are a blessed people. Our spiritual wealth of salvation given to the worst people. Listen, we just quickly looked at all the ways that we sin and how our character is bent against God. You saw that today, and yet he saved you anyway. He shouldn't have saved me. He should be condemning me forever in eternal torment in hell, but he saved me. He gave me his grace. He poured that over me. He lavished me with his righteousness. Our special community of believers who uniquely love the Lord and each other in spite of our sinful bents. I mean, we could look down the row right now and go, or we could look down the row right now and go, wow, look at the way they put Christ on display. I am so thankful for them, so grateful. Make certain, this is one thing I want you to write down right now. Make certain you thank God more for his gifts and salvation than you complain about this world. I'm going to say it one more time. Make certain you thank God more for his gifts and his salvation than you complain about this world. This world should have no pull on us at all. Letter B. Grow in your knowledge of God and keep your mind focused on what's true. You need and I need to deal with sin and we need to flee sin. But more importantly, we need to pursue Christ. And again, you heard me say it last week, don't pour all your efforts into not sinning. Pour your efforts into being what Christ wants you to be, serving the way Christ wants you to serve, honoring Him the way He made you to honor Him, expressing your giftedness in a way that you put Him on display. Invest most of your spirit-dependent efforts in knowing Him, keeping your mind focused on the things of God. Make certain you're not only attacking the sins of commission, but you're also not sinning in omission. That's one of the keys, friends. It's like if we just would get about the process of doing what he's commanded us to do, we would find ourselves sinning less and actually enjoying life more. Be about doing what he's called you to do. Letter C, get aggressive with your sin battles. Get aggressive. Couchmen do not win battles. You say, what's a couchman? It's people who spend all their time, their waking moments, on the couch. Playing games, watching TV in their mom's basement or their relative's house as they wait for the CEO job that is never going to arrive. And they're 35 or 40 or 50 and they're going, it's going to come. I'm going to get that bank president job. It's coming. Listen, casual believers do not win life-changing spiritual battles. Casual believers do not win life-changing spiritual. Wimps don't win. Warriors win. And you've got to step up and do battle. Only those who use all the means of grace, dependence upon the Spirit of God, saturated in the Word of God, diligent prayer, interconnectedness to God's church, discipleship. Dabblers never experience victory. If you're addicted to porn, you're in financial debt, if your marriage is rocky, your family is spiraling out of control, it's time to get aggressive. It's time to fight. Get connected. Get to work. Make a choice of your will to stand upon the truth. Get the help that God has given you in the means of grace and go after it. Stop whining about it and step up and be a godly man. Letter D. Only by turning to Christ can you be free from sin. 
I'm not talking about making the decision for Christ at some point in your life. That won't free you from sin. Did you hear that? You can only be freed from sin when Christ makes the decision to regenerate you. Cry out to Christ to open your heart to give you a new born again heart. It's all of grace. Make certain, the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1, of his choosing you. Make certain, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, that Christ is in you. Only then can you escape eternal death and overcome the power of sin and one day be free, freed from sin forever in the blessing of heaven and forever enjoy. Cry out. Say, open my heart. Give me the faith to believe. Give me the repentance to turn. Give me a new nature so that I might serve you. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we pray that you might take your word and it might actually make a difference in our lives. And Father, we pray that we might be doers of the word, not just hearers, that we might be standing on truth, not just reflecting on it, not, not thinking that we're being spiritual because we've just heard your word, but that we take the steps to apply your word. We pray, our God, that you would do a work in us that you might draw some to yourself to awaken them to their desperate need of salvation. Only you can do that. Father, we've seen you in our midst take a, a man who's been at our church for 30 years in the church and then finally come to a saving faith in you. If there are any here who are like that, Lord, would you awaken them to their desperate need? For the rest of us, May we understand how sin works. May we take steps to avoid those areas that lead to temptation when we get diligent with our minds to refuse to think poorly, to embrace the temptation as it flies through. Help us to do battle against that, but also help us to pursue those, those commands that you call us to fulfill so that we might be stronger believers, men and women who stand for you in a declining culture, who can stand for anything stand for what matters no matter what the cost we pray father that we might be that type that regardless of the cost that we would stand for you and that you would build in us those kind of convictions and we'll thank you for what you'll do and we pray this in jesus name amen Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.